this is totally off subject, but all these UCI fines, where do they go? What fund does that go into? Well, no one ever talks about the plethora of money in the world of cycling outside of, I think ASO is probably the only massively profitable entity out there. Yeah. So unless the ASO is somehow, um, you know, tapped into that, I have no idea. It probably goes into some stupid fund that at the end of the year, how big do you think it gets? How I-, I bet they have a big UCI bash. <laughs> end of the year blowout with Swiss francs galore. Hey there, welcome on back. I am Ted King. This is King of the Ride podcast. And friends, you are in store for a really amazing show today. First, however, I need to point out that I'm currently hanging out on cloud nine. Just yesterday was the eighth annual King Challenge. Obviously, I've been talking about the ride for a few weeks now. But for a week leading up to the ride itself, the weather was looking shall we call it potentially unfavorable, but then 48 hours out, we saw that the sunshine that we've had every single year was back in store. The day itself went off without a hitch, 300 plus riders collectively raising clear of $100,000 for the Crample Center. Folks, that is baffling, so can't thank you all enough for that. We had friends in from California, from Virginia, from all over the Eastern Seaboard. Of course, we had friends from every pocket of New England itself. Justin Walker and his team served up a royal feast. We had freshly shucked oysters. That was a new hit from the folks at Select Oysters down in Boston. Lagunitas beer was on tap. Orin Swift wine was also new in a very welcome addition to the party. Yasso Greek Froyo, they brought out a huge team. Cannondale, of course, crushed it as always with the EF, Education First, Dropic, powered by Cannondale, bus in attendance. That title, of course, we learned speaking with our friend Kevin Sprouse just the last episode. Look, I could go on and on with our sponsors at the King Challenge. We can't thank you enough. The sponsors are awesome. The riders are awesome. How much money we raised is absolutely incredible. 2019 is already looking to be another rager, so don't forget, two years from now is going to be the 10th anniversary. Holy moly, it is amazing what this ride has already become. So speaking of King Challenge, a King Challenge alum, Joe Dombrowski, is the guest on today's show. Joe and I were teammates back in 2015. I don't listen to my conversations, to these conversations often before they go to publication, electric publication, we'll say. But I did on this one, and folks, it is pure gold. I laughed out loud continually throughout the conversation, catching up with with the conversation that I was in. Joe has always been one of the good guys. He's such a conversationalist, such a really upbeat, positive guy. He has so many hilarious little zingers out there. And not to mention how flipping talented he is. Joe Joe is definitely one of the good guys. So much like the aforementioned UCI get-together with Swiss Franks galore, this conversation is a party. I'll keep it quick here. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm off to Spain as we speak with my friends at Ingamba, hopefully back ASAP with another fresh pod. As always, if you could hit the subscribe button on your podcast player, that does wonders. If you are up for leaving a review, those are also tremendously helpful. Folks, thank you very much for taking the time. Next up is my conversation with Joe Dombrowski. Did you see, I didn't see it on live TV, but I think Garen Thomas did an actual mic drop on the Tour de France podium. Saw it. Uh, Good man. I saw it. I was, I was impressed by it. Is, are we in a post mic drop era? I think we still say mic drop from time to time. I've, I've very rarely seen one outside of, I think Jay-Z maybe eight, eight plus years ago. I don't know. I felt it was uh, a bold move by a first-time tour winner. And I was like, that's super cool, but I feel like he should have done that two years ago. Mm. What do you think? Maybe you got to like go back to I kind of liked it. it. Yeah? I liked it, yeah. But you, did you see it? I only saw a GIF on Twitter. Mm. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of context around it. I didn't see like an amazing... I don't know if he gave a speech. Oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> Can you imagine if they give him the jersey and the lion and the flowers? Are you I- supposed to give a speech? <laughs> And he just, they hand him the mic and he just drops it. That'd be a solid move. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, well, welcome to King of the Ride podcast. How long have you been 
in existence? In the casting pod business? Uh, we started in about, hmm, I'd say mid to late May. No, it was early May 2018. Um, often the podcasts start with a, a bit of what am I doing, what's happening in the cycling world, so on and so forth, because uh, we were talking about the Giro. Yates, Yatesy. Um, and in fact, it was, it was partially inspired by one of your teammates, Mitch Docker, who I'm highly, um, entertained by. I think Mitch has a wonderful podcast. I really like listening to it. I thought you were a wonderful guest at his, thank you. What Jira teammate? Is that how it came? Uh, my Jira team, I think it was called. Yeah. What a hoot. What's the name of the podcast? Life, life in the Peloton. Life in the Peloton. Mitch Docker. I just love listening to like his Australians will just throw out vernacular, like Australian vernacular, because that's just the way they speak. Which is always an e, an affectionate e to everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, like potty, potty. Yeah, potty, Jody. Which what does is, he call you? What is what jo- is Jody? Jody. Ah, <laughs> uh, too good. Um, I listened to one recently where he talked to Lawson. Yep. Um, what I really like about Mitch's podcast is his forever upbeat nature mm. he is a perpetually happy individual it he's seems. very positive yeah and and i bring that up because in the context of lawson and you know lawson obviously had a very fascinating and riveting tour de france um i don't know if you caught it it was an interesting one yes and uh you know at the end mitch is just like lawson i'm, I'm so inspired like i'm gonna go into this vuelta in a totally different manner i know that was a terrible accent mm-hmm. but it was good thank you um, so yes, the, the purpose of this podcast, you see, is to, I feel like I still have a lot of, um, contacts within the industry. I continue to travel within the realm of the sport, uh, directly and indirectly. This is actually the first race that I've been yeah. at, which is kind of exciting. I don't actually know what you do now. Okay. I well, see fair. you, a, I see you a lot. Yeah. Not in person, but about, uh-huh. but I don't know exactly well, we can we can extract that over the course know of either. Uh, it's been interesting being here in Canada because I've I've tried you know immediately see a lot of people who I haven't seen in a whole handful of years. You and I were just talking about Cervelo Test Team. Simon Garen and I were teammates for two years, uh, just one year, but we were very good friends that first year, and that, that that friendship has remained through to this day. Even though I haven't seen him in like three plus years at this point, mm-hmm. he's a good example of the people I'm seeing here. I'm like. You know, hey man, how are you doing? How's life been? What do you What do you do? Mm-hmm. So we'll use the next ten to fifteen to sixty minutes, whatever it's going to be, to extract what I do. I recommend doing what I do because it's a whole lot of fun. Yeah. What do I actually do? As many more sentences than I have in me right this very second. So um, the purpose of the podcast is not to talk about me. It is to talk about you. Um, we are here on the eve of. Grand Prix Montreal. Uh, we are on the the post. What's the opposite of Eve? The day after. Uh, I don't know. We're at the day after Grand Prix the Quebec. Hangover. The hangover. Did you um, indulge this time of year? I've explained to my wife quite a bit that that uh, people have they let loose quite a bit more now that it's September. The season's nearly over. A lot of guys will end their season here. Mm-hmm. Um. Speaking of hangover, did you have a beer? Do you have any sort of celebratory beverage last night to uh, you know, lick your wounds? I did not. Uh, huh? I do like the beers of Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, I particularly like Fan du Monde. Well said. Uh, the the boys went for a walk, which they do after dinner. Um, I think when we had a strong population of Italians in the team, <laughs> they they rubbed off on us, and you know now we all do this digestion walk. So you were saying the Italians would actually go for walks. Yeah, but only after dinner. Yeah, a digestive, which is interesting. Let me quickly interject to say when I raced for the team that has segued into the the slipstream side of Canada, basically I'm racing for liquid gas. Mm-hmm. No, you do not go for a post. No walking. No walking. Well, the guys went That's for a walk. That's wasted energy. Okay, go on. <clears throat> and I assumed it was just a walk and... I crashed yesterday, mm-hmm. so I wasn't feeling like really doing much of anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out, well, for one, I saw that they were gone for quite a while, and it turns out they went for a beer, uh-huh. which actually post-crash seems quite nice. Uh-huh. 
I apologize I didn't offer to bring you one yesterday. You did offer, but I think we just didn't, uh, we didn't meet. Um, I had, so the, the brewery is named, I just want to say Unibrew, 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 Mm -hmm. whatever it is. They make La Fin du Monde, wonderful Quebec beer. I had a Modit last night, which is also wonderful. Modit is also good. Yeah. Yeah. They're sort of Belgian-ish. They're Belgian style. They're very dark in artistic, uh, labeling and they make wonderful beers. So... Um, yeah, you took a, you took a tumble yesterday, as you mentioned, as we were catching up a little bit yesterday, you do a really good job of not crashing often, but crashing spectacularly well. Yeah. Luckily, nothing (laughs) on, on me broke, uh, but, uh, the bike, I think I broke both wheels, Uh the frame, the saddle, (laughs) and I broke my helmet. That's a costly... That is a costly, yeah. In terms of carbon fiber, but excellent. You didn't break any bones. No. No skin loss. No skin loss. It was kind of one of those. Walk me through it. Like you. Well, I actually have no idea what happened. Um, I'm not a guy that. Well, knock on wood. I'm not a guy that crashes very often. I I I would say I average about one crash per season. Mm -hmm. Um, I think this was the first one for me. and I'm not actually sure what happened in this instance, but High I seen uh, it was on a descent. Yeah, and I was on the bottom of the pile, so seemingly I was the first one to crash. But I, yeah. And it, I guess what what sort of miffs me is that you didn't lose skin. A high speed crash, yeah, something's gonna give. You, yeah. You well, it was kind of an over the bars crash, so it was a thud <laughs> that was mostly absorbed by my hip, hip and my helmet. Okay, that's excellent. Well, great work, your hip. Rock yep. makes wonderful helmets. Yep. Okay. Hip, hips can be replaced. Yeah. Fact. Um, <laughs> that is helpful. And then, okay, so one of the segueing an injury to something that, uh, well, just dive right into it. You reached out to me in your time at Sky one time to ask me about iliac artery endofibrosis. Is yep. that correct? Yep. Uh, because you were familiar with... You and I had been racing against each other. I had chatted about my brother who has undergone the surgery to mm-hmm. repair the the artery affliction that um, you will probably have a better do a better job describing than I, but mm-hmm. in effect I, I explain it as your artery lengthens and then sort of kinks. I think so. I don't know if they they being the medical professionals actually know what happens. Mm-hmm. Um Basically, it's some sort of mechanical damage from repetitive hip flexion. Uh, it happens to cyclists, triathletes, sometimes rowers, actually. No kidding. It? Yeah. Huh. Um, it's not uncommon. Correct. I think it's um, under-reported. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a, a, a lot of cyclists have it and they or are symptomatic of it but don't realize they have it. Yeah, it can be hard to diagnose. Like, at first I thought it was neural Mm -hmm. because it's kind of this vague, like, lack of power and kind of numbness and whatever. So in, yeah, three sentences or less, explain what happens. Yeah, so... Or more. Symptomatically, I would say, you know, basically under load, higher power outputs, sustained higher power outputs, um, you have basically limited blood flow to the affected limb. Um, so yeah, your power drops. Sometimes you get some like weird numbness. Um, and typically it goes away once you drop the intensity. Um, they can do the repair of the artery. Um, typically they will cut it open and put a graft on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll kind of like loosen up the area around the inguinal ligament down Ooh. in your pelvis. Okay. By uh, like snipping at the ligament to give it more play. Yeah. I think they cut sort of a notch in it. Um, but yeah, there's not really that much that's known about it. I mean, it's certainly common in cycling, but that's still in, and, and it's common at like high level cycling. Um, because I think it really could be considered a rep- repetitive use injury and mm-hmm. um, it takes years to kind of have it come on. And 
Yeah, I mean, that's still a relatively small population of people who are afflicted by that. Um, so I don't think there's that much known about it, but uh, I spoke with your brother on the phone. I think he was driving across Montana at the time. <laughs> yeah, um, he's he's third year um, medical school student now, so yeah, that feels like forever ago that that was happening. And yeah, goodness, it was yeah. only a handful of years ago. And he talked me through it. Uh, I saw the same doctor as him, Dr. Cherry, down in Charlottesville, which luckily is quite close to where my family lives. That's crazy coincidence. I remember my brother drove down to see Dr. Cherry, who is, I believe, the preeminent surgeon in this sort of thing. Yes. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I had it done. Uh, I missed more or less the re- rest of the season. So um, this was second year Sky? Yep. Okay. It, it sort of started in my first year, mm-hmm. um, but it took me quite a while to like figure out what was going on. And I actually came to this race my second year right yes. after the surgery just to that. sign in. Yeah. Because there's this funky world tour, world tour race rule where if you don't field a full team, mm-hmm. I think it's a 5,000 euro fine per rider. Mm-hmm. And they were short on guys, which often happens at the end of the season with injuries and illness and motivation Motivation. and (laughs) all sorts of problems that happen at the end of a long season. Yeah. And they asked me to come and I obliged. So, and you were a cheap plane ticket. I mean, you're coming up from Virginia. Yeah, I was in Virginia and you know, there was no pressure for me to race or anything. Um, so more or less I just signed in for both, both races and drank a fan du monde and ate some poutine. And I remember feeling for you because, um, GP Montreal does not start easily. I had been following sort of per, on the periphery of you undergoing the surgery as a result of uh, my brother having gone through it. And yeah, hot damn. That's this, this race does not start easily. No. Uh, but you, you, you seem to have thrived. So yeah, well actually I never went to the start line. I just signed on, but the commissaires yes. funny, we were talking about this with, with my teammate Sepp von Mark yesterday. Uh-huh. The commissaires were on to me and knew that I was just signing in and leaving. I remember that. And it was mostly too. to just avoid the embarrassment of like, I wasn't really meant to be racing yet. And I didn't, we started like straight up this hill. And I didn't want to like, you know, be creeping up this hill past all these people. Uh, so they, they delayed the race for like five minutes and they were like, Joe Dombrowski, we're looking for Joe Dombrowski. You signed in. You're supposed to be at the start line. Yeah. Uh, and then in the end, they, they were almost going to find the team anyway, but I think they explained the situation and yeah. they felt bad, so oh, they man. left me alone. The sympathy rule. The UCI rarely yeah, it's utilizes not, that one. It's, uh, it's not common. No. Uh, what I wonder, here's this is totally off subject, but all these UCI fines, where do they go? What fund does that go into? Well, no one ever talks about the plethora of money in the world of cycling outside of, I think ASO is probably the only massively profitable entity out there. Yeah. So unless the ASO is somehow, um, you know, tapped into that, I have no idea. It probably goes into some stupid fund that at the end of the year, how big do you think it gets? How I, I bet they have a big UCI bash. <laughs> end of the year blowout with Swiss who's, Franks galore. Who's the president now? Uh, what is his name? Is he? He's French. He's French. It's not Macron. No, but there's the uh, there's a story that like he was a small time politician and basically don't mess with small time politicians. Yeah, he's he was the mayor of a town. Yeah, which Mr. Brailsford referenced at the Tour de France this summer, huh. saying he was being yeah. a bit too town mayorish. There it is, exactly. Uh, I don't remember the town. And I can't really remember the guy's name. Uh-huh. It'll come to me. Le Partillon. Oh wow, nailed it. See, I never would have been able to think about that like draw up that name because the entire French language from the very beginning of my, my international cycling career as, as remained foreign, I was teammates with, uh, Dominic Roland yeah. from Montreal. And we were at a race in France and Dominic is as French Canadian as it gets. And we were trying to order hot water, which I pronounce as, uh, should, <laughs> which I know that I'm not pronouncing well, but I know I don't pronounce it well. So I'm like, Hey, Dominic, can you order me some hot water? And he, in his, you know, uh, classic French Canadian tried to order hot water. And the woman 
repeatedly said, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're saying. And I'm like, if you can't do it, what on earth? How am I ever going to stand a chance? So at that mm. point, I decided to keep the they, French language at arms you distance. You know, the, the, the Quebecois have kind of a funny pronunciation. I've heard that it's actually correct French. That's what I've heard. Uh, but they have kind of a funny way of, and it's maybe because they know how to pronounce names as an American would in English, but I find that they're like uh, speaking in very French-sounding French. Uh-huh. And then when they get to a name... They just go to like full on American. <laughs> Have you noticed that? No, because I don't know the nuance of French like, in the first be place. Like, alors, il y a Joe Dombrowski. <laughs> it's Got just it. like that. Yeah. And I always chuckle when we go to sign in here because they have like, you know, French is one of those languages where, let's be honest, the more sarcastic you sound, probably uh-huh. the better you uh-huh. are. Yeah. Uh, Play it on thick. <laughs> and. <laughs> You got to sign in and it's just that. But then they get to the names and it's just like dead American. Yeah. Yeah. They they have a great announcer here. He's a smooth operator. Yeah. He, he, he's got the voice for radio, uh, Mm. but he's like a smooth looking dude up on stage and shoot, he's up there. He's literally talking. This is the first time I've seen it. You know, he's talking for five hours. Yeah. And he's saying. I actually thought he's Anderson Cooper. He has that look. He does look look like Anderson Cooper, doesn't he? (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing? (laughs) Whoa, what's Anderson doing at this bike race? Yeah. Uh, magnificent. So you're, uh, you do know the nuance of French. You live in Nice. Yep. How many years now? Uh, this is my sixth year. Holy cow. Yeah. My goodness. Time goes by quickly. So let's backtrack a handful of years. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did we meet in Luca? Yes. Uh, in 2012, we went out to dinner Yep. Um, Who all was there? How's your memory? It would have been myself. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Larry Warbass. Sounds right. Because And that blew me away because Larry and I were, he was the little Grom on Priority Health, which became Bissell, which became yes. a variety of other teams, including Livestrong, yes. which you raced for. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, shoot, I probably have 10 years on Larry. Yep. So you're right. You, Larry. Uh, Rob Squire. Quite possibly. Uh, Boswell Bos- went yeah. home. Okay, okay. Uh, who else was there? Maybe Danny Summerhill? Uh, don't think so. No? And so as you bring up these names, these are the, this is immediately post-Giro? Baby Giro? We had just done the Baby Giro. I think it went well for you? I had won. Okay. And won two stages. Hot damn. Uh, and yeah, we went out to dinner. I tried with- to order the brain. Yes. And they didn't have it. Yeah. That was the first time I was going to commit there, to ordering. You, you were with someone else. I don't remember who. Yeah. Uh, ben King was a good friend. I don't think he was there unless he was. Maybe he was because he might have been like the linchpin because I have a few right. years on Ben. Yeah. There was someone that, that orchestrated. And or Phil Cortez, who actually lives right here in Quebec. Well, needless to say, there was somebody else there. Yeah. Um, man, oh, man. So that was a mere 2012. six. And do you suppose you were assigned then? What happens What happens immediately after winning the Baby Giro, which is like the biggest race to win as a U23 in my mind as someone who's never raced Baby uh, Giro? Well, there was a lot of team interest, but honestly, straight away, there was a lot of agent interest. Because hmm. that is like prime, prime Fishing. picking for yeah. agents. Totally. Uh, which... As an under-23 rider, you're not really exposed to that, nor is there really any need for that. Right. Um, yeah. So a, a bit of both, really. And I I had some offers, and I, I'd actually gotten offers the year before. Uh, my first ever offer was from Astana in 2011. Curious. Yes. Uh, and then 2012... Um, yeah, I had some offers, and it, it kind of turned into being, like, a stressful time for me. I didn't really like, you know, uh, there, in cycling, there's a lot of pressure uh, on, or I shouldn't say pressure. There's a lot of influence on potential. Mm-hmm. So young guys that people think are very talented, you know, teams are swooping in left and right for them. Um, and I found it very draining to speak on the phone with, I mean, 
this should have been very exciting and it was very exciting. But at the same time, I found like having pressured conversations with the bosses of world tour teams to be really draining. And like, Mm -hmm. it's not it uh, almost to where like, it's like, okay, is this fun? Like bike racing is supposed to be fun. This is not fun. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not having fun anymore. And it was just stressful. Um, but in the end, uh, I ended up signing with sky. Mm -hmm. It was probably, I think done around tour of Utah that year. So it would have been like early August, Mm -hmm. mid August. Um, did you go on to race Utah that year? Raced Utah, uh, Colorado. Yep. And then I think I was done for the year. Um, was that the same 2012? I don't mean the same 2012. Was that the same year that you had a really good tour of California going up Baldy on yes. Live Strong? All yep, right. 2012. All right. It's all, uh, the blur is coming together. Yes. How many years did you race with Live Strong? Uh, 2011 and 12. In 2010, I raced Tour of Utah as a stage year. That was a stage year. Okay. And I like, went from Cat 3 to racing with Trek that year. Which I've heard the the sliver of details from. Yeah, you were getting anxious about going to Tour of Utah because on your, your racing license, it still said Cat 3. Yep. Turns out you can't race Tour of Utah as a Cat 3. No, you cannot. But what? I pulled some strings yeah. at USA Cycling. That's very thoughtful. What can I say? So to your point... Now I didn't. I never raced for a official U23 team outside of the U.S. national team U23, and only for one year. So I didn't have that like young, surrounded by your homies atmosphere that you had mm-hmm. at Livestrong, which I think, especially your generation, I, I certainly think they're still doing it now. Even though the Livestrong, what are they even called now? Now team it's action. 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 They, you know, they're a preeminent team. Uh, preeminent U23 team. Those guys are some of the top pros already at the, of that age, segueing into a pro career. But your generation especially seemed to have nothing but fun. It Inclu- was great. Nothing but fun, loaded with talent. I think all of us, uh, regardless of where we are now, would say that was the most fun that we'll ever have racing our bikes. Yep. And interestingly, even at the time, mm-hmm. We said, we're, this is probably the most fun we're ever going to have racing our bikes. Oh, man. And that was like itching to get to the world tour. Yeah. You know, you, like you just want to be a world tour pro. <laughs> it must be wild as a 21-year-old kid being like, well, this is the time of our lives. So it's only going down from here. <laughs> <laughs> About to sign for Sky, but eh. Which was, that that ended up being a challenge, correct? I mean, going to, from a super fun team surrounded by all your friends, going to, sure, an Anglo team in Sky, but... You're jumping into the the, the deep end. The deep end. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing that. I think they were probably two years old at that point. I mean, Sky is still a relatively young team. Yeah. Though at this point they're a decade or so old, whatever. They were the team that everybody wanted to go to, but even then, I almost feel like they were. Uh, I call it the New York Yankees and the Evil Empire. Like to mm-hmm. have that kind of of deep resources from the beginning. Yep. So yeah. Well. Were you psyched? I mean, or was it just like a really great offer that you couldn't say no to? Um, combination of things? I think it was probably a combination of things. I think on the surface, I was like, this is the best team. I want to go to the best team. They'll develop you to be the best rider. They've got the most resources. They just won the tour. They just Maybe. won the tour. Yeah. And it's hard to turn that down. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, I was excited about it. Um, I actually went there with Ian Boswell. That's right. First two Americans. Yeah. Or was Pate there? No. Pate was already there. So we had uh, three Americans actually. Nice. Um, and Danny was kind of like the old guard. Uh, and we were the young new kids on the block. Which one thing I really want to talk to you about is training. And <laughs> I think it was probably you. Maybe it was Ian. Maybe it was some other source that told me that like... You know, Sky is known for having a very regimented training plan that you need to report what you're doing every day. And if you go off course, you're going to hear, you know, ramifications from your team director. Danny was the Lone Ranger and he could just do what he wanted. He could go back to Colorado and just train his tail off and give a month long I think there was a lot of training on the mountain bike. Yeah. Yeah. What a legend. Like to do that. And I feel like he sort of shot from the hip most of his post postal career. Yeah. Um, did you, did you spend much time with Danny? Was he like a mentor or was yeah, he just like... Yeah, we, we roomed together sometimes. Um, 
Yeah, he was good. I like Danny. Mm-hmm. Actually, he's retiring. He is. I saw. I read that a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, they should make a game like what teams name the teams that Danny's raced for because there'd be a lot of them. There'd be a lot of teams. I think I I could probably take a good stab. Saeco, uh-huh. Prime Alliance, mm-hmm. uh, Jelly Belly, mm-hmm. uh, Healthnet. Was he Healthnet? Yep. In that great movie about Philly, I think. Ah, uh, yes. Philly. Yeah. I said Postal. Did he race for Postal? No, Saeco. Okay. I'm sorry. I know Creed did. Yeah. And then uh, uh, Slipstream. Mm-hmm. Slipstream Chipotle or TIA Craft. I don't know what it was mm-hmm. called when he actually went on board. Uh, HTC. Yeah. Sky. Yep. And Rally. Nailed it. Wow. Yeah. Well, Joe wins the game called. <laughs> Where has Danny Pate raced? Yeah. Very good. Okay. Um, and then on to training. I mean, you and I, you and I were teammates in 2015, which was a whole lot of fun. I was sort of the tail end of my career. You were reinventing your career post Sky, and I really liked your approach to training. You were you were curious and insightful and well informed. And and I guess the question is, do you see training as a means to an end? Where you were trying to get ready for the next race, or do you are you one who like is able to really embrace the training and sort of see training as a, a you know end unto itself? Which... I, I enjoy training. Um, you know, I enjoy a lot of aspects of it. I I like getting out. Um, I like getting out into the mountains, and I think a bicycle is a nice way to do that at a speed where you can take things in. Um, I enjoy even like the intervals aspect of it, like looking, watching progress. I like looking at power data after, um, you know, I, I enjoy really all of it. Um, I just like going out and riding my bike every day. It's sometimes it feels more like a means to an end, you know, as you were saying earlier, this is the time of year where sometimes guys are like finding it a bit harder to get out and get it done. Um, and kind of like hoping to coast on the race fitness that they have from <laughs> the earlier parts of the year. Uh, but I enjoy it. Um, and I think, y- you know, even just getting out and exploring on my bike, like riding new roads, riding new places. Um, I really enjoy that part. I also enjoy the racing. Uh, I enjoy the bike race itself. I enjoy the environment around the race. I like being with the guys. Um, how often do you have a training day that maybe, well, um, the way I want to phrase it, I had a coach who knew that I needed days to just like not blow off steam, but just be like, you have five hours, go do whatever you want. You want to ride hard, ride hard. You want to ride easy, ride easy. Do you have those? Do you request those? Does, does your coach know you might need those or do you just like, eh, I don't need that. Um, yeah, sometimes I think generally it's pretty detailed. Um, I, well, I actually just changed coaches like a month ago and there's been a couple times where he's just given, and granted, like it takes you quite a while, I, th- I think to like learn a coach, just oh, like totally. a coach takes a while to learn an athlete. Yeah. You know, like some athletes, coaches always have to kind of hold back. Mm-hmm. Whereas other athletes, maybe a coach needs to push a bit. Um, so in this instance, like there's been times where I've just kind of had like, you know, do what you want, go out for five hours. Mm-hmm. If you want to ride hard, go for it. If you want to just cruise and you want to stop for a coffee, that's great. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think sometimes that's good. And I think sometimes what the rider wants or feels like, not in all cases, but sometimes like what they want is a good gauge for what they need. Like if they're super tired and feeling blown out, then they'll probably take that five hours and cruise and go for a coffee. If they're feeling fresh, then they might want to go smash. So I think sometimes that can be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Well, right. I mean, it has everything to do with the time of the year, motivation levels, aspirations, are your goals next week or next month or literally next year? Um, there is something to be said about keeping it fresh and having a new coach. Uh, I changed a handful of times over my career. And, and um, yeah, in the same way, there's sort of an onboarding process to 
see what the coach, you know, what sort of methods do they, there is to their madness. You, I don't know, it almost feels sort of rote after three or four years. And you're like, oh man, like I know what you're going to give me tomorrow. So I almost wanted something new and fresh, but right. I don't know. I mean, that that's sort of uh, almost too anxious on my part because like that is the coach knowing you and knowing what's best for you and so on and so right. forth. I listened to a podcast recently with one and only Nate Brown um, and Nate, Nate and I were also teammates same year and he, in this podcast, it, it opens by Nate trying to describe who he is as a person. He's like, I'm just really easygoing, simple guy. I'm like, freaking nailed it. Like Nate is always just upbeat, but totally unfazed. He's just a grinder. Um, he was at Green Mountain Stage Race not too long ago. Yep. You and I were talking about Green Mountain Stage Race not too long ago. I think you should make your way up. Yeah. Gotta yeah, keep things I, fresh. Keep it fresh in the calendar. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I should have joined Nate uh-huh. uh, on my way up here to Quebec. Yeah. Um, so speaking of doing unique races like Green Mountain Stage Race, you and I raced our first ever Leadvilles in the same race. You mm-hmm. did approximately uh, nine places better than I, mm-hmm. if my memory serves me correctly. You got second place. Is that right? Yep. Um yeah, holy cow. I mean, like, I, re- I remember when I raced in the Pro Tour, wanting to do a lot of races like Leadville, but it was also at the time that they were saying it's it's completely prohibitive to do non-UCI races, mm-hmm. Leadville included. And then, like, you and how is getting to this time that it's perfect to do that kind of thing. Whose idea was that? How'd you get into Leadville? Well, uh, I think it was kind of the culmination of our team boss... Cannondale, press officer, sort of everyone. Well, I think it just sort of started with a conversation and it was like, yeah, you know, like maybe you should do Leadville. And then it was something that Cannondale heard about and it was something they were really keen on. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it, so it was really something that like both JV and and Cannondale were were really behind. Um, like I actually felt like this sounds kind of funny, but like I felt like there was like a lot of pressure to perform. Huh. Like they really wanted me to win Leadville. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like it was a big deal for them. And obviously, like I wanted to win if I could too. But it was like a step away from what I would normally do. And I did, you know, like a handful of mountain bike rides before, and I came from a mountain bike background. But like, it's not like I was training for it. Sure. Uh, and you don't just stumble on it. Like, yes, you do well at altitude. Yes, you go uphill as well, but Leadville is a totally different animal. Right. And, and it takes a lot of preparation in terms of like your nutrition and like what tires are you going to run and, oh, what gearing do I need to use? Cause you don't think about that stuff on the road. Uh, Uh, someone more or less decides all that for you. So yeah, it was, it was actually super fun. Um, I think once Hal's got wind of me doing it. He wanted to jump in as well. Totally. He's an adventurer. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they were really into it. Um, and we did the race. I stayed up in, I think, Vale for the week. And, Sounds right. Uh, drove to Leadville the night before and then did the whole shebang. Woke up at four in the morning, ate some pancakes, got dressed. Mm-hmm. It was freezing cold at the start and... I think you're done by like 1230 or something. Yeah. It's such a funny race in that, I mean, I didn't have any team support, so I'm, you know, pulling the strings to get the bike worked on and no, I didn't get massaged, but like, I don't know, just to be completely ready, have, have the right food. You have to, you know, figure out where to get the right nutrition. Did you have any support or are you sort of bootstringing yourself? No, I had, I actually had a lot of support. Like I had people in all the feed zones. I had musettes. No kidding. Uh, Tom Hopper. Yeah. Was my mechanic. Uh-huh. He's excellent. Um, I think he works as Jeremy Powers mechanic in Sounds cyclocross. Um, and he, he's super, uh, yeah. I had like a, a full team behind me. That's sweet. Which it was cool. Um, I don't know how they managed to granted, it was sort of coming from the top, so maybe that's how. But I don't know how they managed to convince the team that that was a good idea the week before the Vuelta. Um, Which you went on to race? I went on to race the Vuelta. Were you signing? 
I feel like you were signing a contract around then. Maybe I just you already signed. had. I just signed. And, okay, so that was it. It was like your insurance policy is you just signed a contract. Like you can crash at mile one and sort of like. Eh. Right, right. And I guess it, for me, it wasn't even so much worried being worried about crashing, but just like, should I be doing this mountain bike race a week before Grand Tour? Yeah. Um, how would the tour go? How would the Volta go? Uh, it was okay. I, I was going really good in the Giro that year. Yeah. And kind of held it, I'd say, about through like early August. And then I think the second... It was, it was my first time doing two Grand Tours in a year, and I don't think I really could handle all that. Um, well, Lawrence and Dom and I and Timmy and Craig Lewis all raced that same Leadville and we're sitting around drinking beers that night. It's probably six o'clock and we're destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, collectively we're on the table and we're like, that is harder than any stage of a tour. That's harder than any I don't classic. Think I still say, okay, there was one day in the Giro this year that was stupid. Incredible. Yeah. But, uh, I would still say, I don't know if I've ever been that destroyed from yeah. a race. Like I was, I felt sick. Uh huh. I remember trying to get pizza and I like was on the other side of the table and I just literally could not stand up and there's oh. nothing that separates me from food. It, yeah, just empty. And I don't get, cause doesn't Wells, Todd Wells like go on to race and win Breck Epic like the next day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what it's about. You know, the race is super high. Uh, I don't think you really ever go much below 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. You go up to about 14,000 feet. Um, and uh, I remember by the time we went up Columbine, which is the highest point in the turnaround, it was myself, Todd Wells and Jeremiah Bishop. And, uh, Todd and I were kind of like taking turns, turning the screws and it just felt so bad that high. Like, you know, like in Europe, you might go do an altitude camp and you're at, you know, 6,000 feet and you stay at the top and you just send down. And then once you get back up to the hotel, you're up, you know, getting close to the hotel and you're at altitude and again, it's like, Ooh, this doesn't feel nice. Yeah. But there you're literally like twice the elevation. Um, it's bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. There's altitude in the States. And I mean, it's the same thing at, uh, Formerly USA Pro Challenge Tour Colorado, as yep. you call it. Like, yep. Yeah. I, the altitude just destroyed me there going over Independence Pass. Yeah. It's like, it, and again, honestly, it's, it's kind of a special, like, niche. It's almost like its own type of racing. Like, there are guys that do really well at altitude and then guys that, that don't. Um, and even, like, I find that I have a lot of variation, like, time to time. Like, Sometimes I'm going really well at altitude and it, it seems like if I've been in altitude like four or five weeks, then I like really adjust well. Yep. But the first week or so I can't, you know, I just, I, I found I could never recover. I could do a one day race decently well. Yeah. I had just done a hut trip across the San Juans right before that was my altitude camp, which was super sweet. Mm. Hut trips, highly recommended. And then going straight into that. But yeah, one day I was fine with weeks weeks long stage races absolutely destroyed me yeah um so let's let's take this off-road racing thing on a on a little segue and i realize that we gotta we gotta get you off to bed here shortly but gravel 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 sweet yeah i've uh i've dipped my toe into it i highly mm-hmm. enjoy it the rumor mill which i like to spread because rumors are sweet. i love rumors rumor Maybe. is that your team is going to be doing a lot of gravel races next year Really? Have you heard this? Uh, I've not heard this. Well, I've heard... Rumors. Murmurs and mumblings. Yeah. Rumblings. Grumblings. Which no is, grumbles, but... Uh, happy grumbles. I mean, it's so funny... <clears throat> Taking, you know, what I said a second ago about the UCI saying, you know, pro tour teams, world tour teams are not allowed to do anything that's non-UCI sanctioned. Mm-hmm. Gravel races are the advent of... I think sort of this Franken bike mentality, the mass start mentality, the yep. anti-team mentality. And now it's almost jumped to shark. The teams are like, yo, we got to get into this. And and you see it in those, like, I don't know if you saw those, uh, the Dutch races that are going on. Like, yep. They're, they're division two, division one races going on that are off road. Um, thoughts, whether or not the rumor is true. Do you think that, you think that's a good thing? 
Do you want to do it? Do you want to do some ground uh, work? Yeah. Actually, do you know, not that it suits me at all, really, <laughs> but um, there is this one race in France, Trobro Leon. I don't Great know name. if you've ever seen that. No. Uh, and I believe that's on gravel. I don't think it's on cobbles. I think it's on dirt. Um, but I've always seen photos and it's like, this looks awesome. Is it is it a pro race? Is it like a Grand Fondo style? It is. No, it's a pro race, but it's not like it might be like a one point one or one point two or I don't know one of those like slightly lower yeah. level. Like you'll probably have lots of French teams, and then I always feel like back in the day, like when Kelly Benefit Strategies mm-hmm. was a team, I felt like they always went. Yeah. So, Hollowesco uh, uh, did one of these races in uh, in the Netherlands this year, mm. which was funny because I'm tweeting. Zatter dog, and I was just stoked that I saw gravel races going on in the, in the Netherlands. And then, uh, who replied to me? Shoot, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. Um, Brandon, Brandon Ream, that's right, Vermonter. And he retweeted it, but I, I didn't realize that he's retweeting it because he's actually going to do the race the next day. Yeah. And so, yeah, like the Hollowescos, the Raleigh's are doing these super sweet races. I think, uh, it's interesting. Uh-huh. I think. Maybe we need some more gravel in world tour racing. I think that is a better answer. And there's like the, Strada Bianchi. Yeah. Okay. Never done the race, but it's entertaining to watch. Have you done any Giros that do some Strada Bianchi? Uh, only as an amateur. And I loved it. <laughs> Sorry. I'm laughing thinking about talking about you about multiple Giros. Well, the Giris. Giri. The Giri. <laughs> I've done three Giri. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear the follow up of uh of his podcast when he talked about correct when you when you pluralize a noun that ends in o it, it becomes i that's the yes. equivalent of putting an s on it like cappuccini yes you, it's Espressi. not cappuccinis so okay sorry digression but what's like what's multiple ferraris and a ferrari ferrari the ferrari good question how many do you have uh currently zero okay so Yes, I think more world tour races need to have a little bit of um, off-road action. I think the the Roubaix stage of the tour this year was certainly interesting. And as as much as I thought the racers were not going to like it, it was fun talking to the LTDs and the um, uh, Ian Boswells afterwards. Two guys that I thought would despise it. And they're like, you know what? That was kind of fun. Yeah. Um I would think it's probably least fun for the GC guys who can't lose time mm-hmm. and aren't really suited to racing on cobbles. I mean, maybe they love it, but I'm sure it's a lot of stress. I, I imagine it's insane stress. Um, I think there wasn't... I don't want to delve too deep into it. Who do are you they? know what? Do you, I, I'm going to put one out there. Please. Uh, do you know what I think we could do more of that I think would be interesting? We could just have like a wild hair and do something totally different, but it's an individual effort. So who cares? I think we need, um, some crazy prologues. Hmm. How crazy? Well, I read this article. I don't remember where I read it, but it was like about the top 10 craziest Jiro pro prologues. And like some of them, like, I, I think one was like a hundred meters long <laughs> and one started on a dock out on the water and you, you like, went off the dock into the port. Uh-huh. I think we need more stuff like that. How about, how about a downhill prologue? Yeah, that's, that sounds great. Um, like, let's, yeah. let's be interesting. I couldn't agree more. Bike racing is a very, it can be a very boring sport. Or another thing, what about team time trial? 10K flat, uh-huh. 5K uphill. Uh-huh. And the, you take the time of the first guy on your team that gets there. So it's like a big so lead out. Huge lead out. Yeah. That'd be awesome. That's kind of cool. I like the prospect of racing to a finish line, but then on the other side of the finish line is like a shark tank or a cliff. So you have to like go as fast as you can, but it's also who is the best braking power. Yeah. Well, there was an incident at the Vuelta a couple of days ago that was a bit like that. <laughs> <laughs> Except it was that? a journalist. <laughs> That, the crash turned. I watched it repeated about seventeen times today. Yeah, I mean, what Dylan went home, Dylan yeah. borrow. Yeah, which is terrible. And okay, you know, like it's it, as riders, there's often a lot of griping about safety in the peloton and how this or that is, uh-huh. you know, not okay. But 
I'm sure these videos get a lot of YouTube hits. Yes. Someone's, yeah, that's a good question. Who gets the, the advertisement, um, kickback <laughs> payback from when somebody hits repeat 17 right. million well, times like, in the bicycle Sometimes crash. the sport is so amateurish. It's just a bit comical. Yeah. So people tune in for the comedy. A hundred percent. I mean, is this, man, that's where cycling is taking a page out of NASCAR. You're there yeah. for the, you're there for the carnage. Yeah. Oh man, we need to write the rules of this bike racing thing. But prologues, I think prologues, uh-huh. you've got an opportunity to do some interesting things. What's the craziest one? And maybe you just, you've already mentioned it. What is the craziest thing you could do? Hmm. Um, well, you know, I know like Tour of Austria has had like a 300 meter uphill prologue before. Just wow. straight up a hill. That's kind of cool. That'd be sweet. I did a Red Bull uh, street sprint once in Or London. what about, you know, in the UK, they're big on these hill climbs. Yeah. And they're, you know, like one kilometer or 500 meters. Uh-huh. And they do them on a fixed gear. Mm-hmm. That would be sort of interesting as mm-hmm. well. Um, I think Dan Lloyd has a background in that. Dan in Lloyd, hill climbing? Yeah. All these, all these stories hinge back to Cervelo Test Team because he was on it. Uh, uh, Garrow. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my mind's going in a couple directions. I just had a very rich meal at Pied de Couchon, so mm. uh, my cholesterol is pinging about seventy points higher than it was yeah. earlier this evening. Um, I recommend the duck in a can. We had that. We also mm-hmm. had poutine with foie. Uh, I love poutine. Oh my god! It's kind of started venturing out of Quebec. I've noticed as like a, a hip hip food. Yeah, it's definitely. It's tracking its geography uh, in concentric circles. Well, maybe not concentric circles, but like Vermont, I think, has more of it than, say, yeah, southern Texas. Yeah. But I imagine the hip Virginian restaurants are, are picking up on poutine. There's probably some poutine, yeah. It's the... For those who don't know, poutine is french fries, gravy, and cheese curds. That's yep. the basic. Yep. Which is sort of no different than nachos, which is tortilla tip, chips, cheese, and salsa. Mm. Yes. Sometimes ground beef. Yeah. Sour cream. Olives. Jalapenos. And that's exactly it. Like, that's your benchmark, and then you can go anywhere from there. Well, I recommend, at the culmination of this race tomorrow, you find yourself at a poutineria. Um, Is that their technical No, definitely not. But they do call it, uh, you know, in, in Belgium, they have the fruiterie. Or would it be more like a poutinerie? A poutinerie, exactly. Well, there's the fruiterie. Which yes. is frites. That was the closest I could pronounce French. Of which I probably just botched it. Anyway, yes. get yourself a Lafine Dumont. Get yourself some poutine. I tried to go to Pied de Couchon at the culmination of my career three years ago. And it, in a totally botched evening, which I still have teammates to this day, former teammates. Nathan Haas apologized. He's like, I'm sorry we didn't do it that night. So today, by going to Pied de Couchon, it was... It was... It was destiny met yes and it was amazing and my 4,000 calorie dinner was delightful mm. so you still have races this year you have a race tomorrow yep I don't need to take any more of your time Joe D pleasure talking with you thank you sir thank you very much have a great race <laughs>